Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Okay, well, the topic for today is Scandalized by Management, a jaded look at adult working life and how to thrive anyway. So, Chris, on this topic of being scandalized or surprised by management and leadership, uh, what's your story? Yeah, you know, I think I was always surrounded by leadership as a kid. I, I grew up, everybody in my family was military officers of some sort. And very involved in scouts as a kid and church. And so saw lots of different, well, people standing in front of people and trying to do something. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that I guess that was my introduction. And, you know, as a kid and then even growing up into college, you know, you kind of think, well, this person's doing a good job because everybody's happy and things are getting accomplished. Right. And these people are not doing a job, but there's never any thought. It was like either you had it or you don't. But then mm-hmm. as you start to step into junior leadership roles as you get out of college and, and different stuff in my time joining the military, um, well, then you start to learn some stuff and you actually start to get in the lab of life and leadership. And uh, it's where you start to realize that there is some stuff behind it. So, But then you actually expect that the people that helm organizations or groups that aren't just kind of like your local community choir, which lots of community choirs have great leadership, but, you know, say the head of a Fortune 500 company or a larger organization that, hey, the people, the higher up the totem pole you're going to get, the actual better management. Um, and so, by- so that's what you expected, Chris. You expected to see better management at the higher echelons of organizations and how did that match with your reality well i mean that was the the kind of fantasy was like hey i'm gonna oh i'm not getting the stuff i need oh well that's because i'm down in the trenches right so i I get if i get up there it'll finally and each step along the way i was both uh alternately scandalized or thrilled because you would find surprising leadership um at like line level type stuff. And then, then you'd find really actual poor, poor leadership, um, at the higher levels. So, Mm -hmm. um, I would say that's, I don't want to dime anybody out, but I I have been in some specific places. Um, I can dime a little bit. I've had some really poor leadership in the military before, but what, what about you, Ben? Yeah. So my experience, you know, I, I definitely, can empathize with what you were saying in terms of, you know, seeing people early on in life at standing in front of groups and talking and act that we have thought that that was leadership and so forth. And, uh, then as I was going through college, I was on a Navy ROTC scholarship. So I was getting ready to go on active duty in the U S Navy. And I had this impression as a naive 21 year old that, this was the greatest Navy that had ever sailed on planet Earth and that it was going to run like a well-oiled machine. And I was somewhat surprised, uh, not by the fact that the U.S. Navy wasn't competent, because it certainly was. It's, it, it, actually, it is the best Navy on the planet uh, that has ever existed. However, uh, things don't run as smoothly as you may think they do. There's a lot of 
individual variation in terms of how effective people are in leading each other. Uh, you know, sometimes people have um, alternative motives that you don't really see, see or ulterior motives that, that are hidden uh, that make the organization not work as well as, as you think it would. So you get a little bit, you know, I was a little bit surprised and perhaps scandalized by seeing some of that. Uh, but then I actually saw even more of it when I made the transition off of active duty into the civilian world in which I, these kind of norms about, you know, taking responsibility for stuff, holding each other and yourself accountable for stuff, that these were not uh, very um, widespread, at least in my experiences in the civilian sector, because there at least wasn't a, a core set of expectations, you know, because, I mean, we can certainly find good and bad examples of leadership all throughout the military, and you and I can talk for hours probably about that. But at the same time, at least there's some uh, common expectations, some common training that's given early on and is, is at least kind of held as a standard of some sort. So that, that was kind of my experiences early on. And, you know, I just saw it. Um, certainly later on doing a lot of consulting work and being around senior level people, uh, seeing a lot of pettiness, you know, there's a, I think there's a book <laughs> yeah. out there, something about like all life is like high school or something. And yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 you, you see that, right. You see people who are backstabbing each other. You see people who are just moody and recalcitrant executives who, who, you know, I'm like, you should be doing what's best for the organization. And that here you are, uh, you know, doing things that are totally in your self-interest or um, just counterproductive altogether. And it was just, it violated my sense of integrity, right? You, I mean, you're there to serve, uh, you know, the organization and to help it to succeed and to help everyone there thrive and flourish. And it just wasn't happening. So I, I was definitely surprised by that. And I continue to, to see that. Uh, I think it's a fairly common um, feature of adult working life. You yeah, know? It's, uh, it's everywhere. So, you know, I guess those frustrations were what drove a kind of odd curiosity about this stuff, about, you know, what what can be known about management and, you know, well, you know, these terms kind of get mixed, but, you know, mixed up, like leadership. We need some executive leadership or we need more management. So, Ben, like, if you had to distill the difference between management and leadership, what would they be? Sure. So first of all, I think that there are differences between management and leadership at a theoretical level, at a practical level. I think that any organization needs good doses of both of them, right? So sometimes leadership gets held up as, oh, stop managing, start leading. Well, no, you got to have both. Otherwise, your organization isn't going to work well. Uh, so to, to define these, you know, one, one thing that I come back to, um, this was something that the, uh, the now retired Harvard professor, John Cotter, who's written a lot on change and I have major issues with some of what he does on organizational change, but he does say, have a, a good article where he talks a little bit about, um, leadership and what it, how it's different from management. And he says that, you know, management is about dealing with helping people to helping people and organizations to deal with complexity and leadership is about helping an organization cope with change. And I think there's a good amount of truth there. Um, leadership is oftentimes the aspect of organizational life that is more concerned with how to influence and inspire and set strategy and uh, how to ensure that the organization and its members are doing the right thing. 
um, versus just doing things right. So sometimes management is a little bit more about efficiency, getting things done, um, you know, with as few resources as possible or in an efficient manner, whereas, and is a little bit more tactical, whereas leadership is much more um, big picture, vision type stuff. And of course, any organization needs a lot of both to work well. So I'm an advocate for both, um, you know, strong management and leadership skills throughout organizations, because you can't just have a whole bunch of people who are only doing the leadership aspect of things and, and ignoring actually getting stuff done, which is kind of the nature of management. Yeah. You know, the thing that's surprising to me is, you know, when you work someplace, everybody expects you to know your job, right? So, yeah. you know, can you write these lines of code? Can you develop a go-to-market strategy or these aspects. I mean, there's like hard skills. And you'll see them in these job descriptions that people post, right, on sure. LinkedIn or or whatever. But the body of knowledge around management and leadership is actually, I don't know, it's it's not a recent, you know, study. So it, it's just curious to me how companies don't have this as a requisite skill or if this is not like requisite training that just kind of goes on like everybody knows how to tie their shoes um you know everybody should probably at some level be familiar with some of the leadership models like situational leadership or you know some of those items and, and they're yeah. just not yeah you know i think that's a great point and uh you know i think some of the best organizations out there do some of this in in terms of their uh, talent management and leadership development types of initiatives where they try really actively try to assess and identify who their high potential leaders are and then putting them through experiences and training that helps to develop them. Uh, so there is some that some of that that does happen. Um, but you're right that, you know, that we've known a lot about leadership for quite a long time. I mean, we have, um, you know, about a century worth of, of research from organizational psychology, which helps us. Um, and certainly there's no lack of, of, you know, pop psychology books out there on the topic. Um, you can, you can find mostly uh, bad books, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, usually they're full of a bunch of, uh, you know, irrefutable laws and unfalsifiable theses about, um, you know, what leaders do and so forth that are cure your management woes with Windex (laughs) and this one easy trick. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And, you know, so some of them are kind of like, you know, you remember like the eight minute abs it's like somebody comes out with oh seven minute abs remember that was the big joke in that movie in that in that movie there's something about mary right that's a big joke yeah Um, yeah. like spray paint them on have them now yes yes maybe we could come up with a book that's just you know the one irrefutable law of leadership you know um (laughs) might be be better uh even easier than than whatever the other ones are but i mean there's I think any of these models and books that are out there, just while we're on the topic, I think there's usually, uh, you know, some truth in them. Um, and the, the problem that I have with some of it, it is, it, is it's, it's anecdotal and oftentimes derived just from one person's experience um, versus, you know, some of the fundamentals that we do know from more rigorous social science research on the topic. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, to, but going back to your point about why don't organizations have all of this be stuff that people go through, uh, you know, in terms of 
you know, necessary requisite skills for certain levels. Well, you know, I, I think that some organizations do it. A lot of them don't. And the ones that some of them that do even, um, I, you know, just talking to, I, I know a lot of people who do talent management, who do leadership development in big organizations, and even they are somewhat scandalized by their own organization's efforts in these areas oh. because they're like, you know, we're, <laughs> yeah, they're just saying, hey, we're, we're just doing lip service to this, you know, uh, we're not, at, yeah. they, you know, and they're struggling with the internal organizational constraints because nobody, no managers want to give up their people for, you know, a, a long um, period of time to go do some sort of, um, some sort of leadership development or something, you know. So I was actually talking with a, um, a person who runs this type of stuff at a very large, well-known hospital organization. And, you know, he said, you know, think about from the organization's perspective, if you've got a cardiothoracic surgeon who is in a leadership development program for a while, um, you know, that's a rather expensive proposition, right? Because they're, they're not out there <laughs> doing stuff that's making the organization money. So, it, you know, I think yeah, it, I, it, it I is think a, those, um, those things are, you know, that's where this stuff needs to be part of the lexicon of how we raise people, um, mm-hmm. period, globally. Um, like if you're learning this through, you know, K through 12 college, mm-hmm. grad school, if that's part of your medical education, um, well, I mean, there, there's several facets of that piece. So like, if that's just part of the practical humanities that people can grow up and live in, that's going to make right. the world better for everybody. Um, and then, you know, a comment I'd like to make is like a lot of the organizations that we're in and that I've seen, uh, you know, it's okay, we're going to do this leadership training and it's a death by PowerPoint or, you know, we always say it's like, okay, here's a book on boxing. Now, now go get in the ring and be able to execute. And that's just not how people learn, right? Um, And then the other common one I see is you'll have, you know, whatever level that like for our consulting stuff, you know, when we come into an organization, somebody says, come do all this wonderful people development within my organization, but don't ask me to actually change anything. Or, hey, I'm the CEO. Yeah, do whatever you want as long as I get to be me, you know, type, type, um, let the CEO be the CEO. And then it creates this like kind of organizational cognitive dissonance because, you know, if you do actually run a robust training, coaching, mentoring, you know, your organization becomes healthy and then, then maybe that leadership person actually isn't and is still, you know, playing with this kind of tried and true um, bag of tricks. But um, so let, let's maybe shift a little bit here. So let's let's talk about, say, incompetent management and leadership. So, Ben, why does it keep why does it persist? I mean, we see it. We experience it. It drives us nuts. Uh, why? Why isn't it getting fixed? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of reasons why incompetent management and leadership persists in organizations. You know, um, it, it is a rather vexing problem though you know you, it's kind of like families you would expect that every family if they learn 
and don't repeat the mistakes of how they grew up, that families would just increasingly get better and they'd move all the error out of how they parent and things would be perfect. Um, and that you'd think that the same thing would happen with, with management and leadership, right? You, that people have managers and leaders who maybe did some things not, that didn't work so well and they would try to not repeat those mistakes. They would learn from the good and the bad and that over time, organizations would just get better at this and people would just get better at this. But that's just not the case um, because we're human. We're, we're full of, I mean, our, our minds are incredibly complex. Uh, our motivations are incredibly complex. And just at a practical level, a lot of times in organizations, promotion into a, a position in which you are leading others is not based upon your leadership skills. You know, this is the classic case of the amazing salesperson who, uh, you know, gets promoted into being the sales manager. Um, and the problem with that is that what got you to a level of success in that current role isn't what's necessarily what's going to make you successful in your next role. Uh, there's a, you know, a big shift that needs to happen. And so when you have promotion based upon individual contributor success, uh, that's not necessarily going to translate into leadership or management success. Right, right. You know, and I, I also think a lot, of, a lot of how people come to their style or person, and I mean, there's research into stuff like authentic leadership and all these different types of leadership. But, you know, most people that I run into, it's, well, I had these mentors or examples in my life and, you know, kind of a monkey see, monkey do approach. Um, or, you know, the, you know, you'll read books about, okay, the Steve Jobs way, the Warren Buffett way, yeah. you know, all, all of these ideas, uh, which the challenging part is, first of all, you're not Jobs or Buffett, right? Um, <laughs> if my Don't success, fool yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If my success in life was dependent on me being like one of those people, um, right. ouch, you know, th there's not a whole bunch of um, hope for me in that yeah. place. Well, and, and like Steve Jobs, a lot of people, and I, you know, you, you hear the accounts of how he actually led. He was kind of a jerk. Right. Which like, hey, there's literature around like, hey, you can be a total jerk and get stuff done. But yeah. I mean, what do you want to do with that as far as like people in life? Yeah. Well, and some of this, I mean, comes back to like how you, how you want to be remembered and how you want to live your life and how you want to treat other people. Um, I think it's, you know, some of these really big questions of, of integrity that come into developing your own leadership style. Right. Right. So when we look at all these incompetent leaders, you know, from the top to the bottom, they've got no role model. Um, they, they don't have like any kind of pedagogical or teaching methodology to, you know, I, I know that stuff that I asked when I was younger in my career in the military, I'd asked my lieutenants, like, how are you going to develop your subordinate leaders? And, and they just had yeah. no clue because they weren't familiar with the leadership um, materials or any of that kind of knowledge base and all that stuff. It, it can get kind of depressing, right? It can. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I always take from design thinking is like, hey, let's take that depressing item or thing and just look it straight in the eye and mm -hmm. see the world for how it is, not how we would hope it would be. So you actually plan a way forward that that rather than just make it through to the end of life and die, that, that we can actually thrive and, and live a good life now. 
Right, right. Yeah, so it's a, you know, we can we can try to change the world or, you know, in terms of the, the fundamental ways in which people behave, or we can uh, actually um, accept the way that reality exists and deal with that. So if people aren't going to, people don't have good role models, they're not necessarily going to read the stuff you tell them to, or maybe there's not good stuff available. So then the question becomes, you know, how do we uh, engage in a more human-centered approach to help people get better at these types of things, right? Right. So, so now let, let's maybe shift from the, oh, what a bleak picture here. And let's talk about what can people and organizations do to begin to thrive? So like maybe, you know, I mean, Ben, you teach, uh, you're a professor, um, and you've got lots of students that are coming through, uh, grad students that are kind of mid-career as well. Yeah. What, what would some of the things that you tend to tell them? Yeah, so there are a handful of, of things that we talk about. Um, and, you know, so I teach in our MBA program. We also have a master's program in HR that I teach in. Um, and, you know, these are folks who are, you know, kind of in that nexus of, uh, you know, moving into leadership roles or trying to figure out their careers and so forth. And I think one of them is, you know, just coming to a realization that there are things that you can control and there are things that you can't control. So recognizing what your scope of influence is in your in your current level, in your current career path or, or trajectory, knowing what you can and you cannot change, that can be really helpful. Because, you know, if it's something that's outside of your control, um, then you need to figure out a way to deal with it that uses things that you can control. So if you have a terrible boss who's just mistreating you in all these different ways, well, you're may, probably not going to necessarily change the way your boss is behaving, but you can change your reactions to your boss. You can look at different options within your organization to, uh, you know, remedy that situation or maybe move somewhere else and so forth. But you have to recognize what you can and cannot change. I think that's one of the first things that's really important, uh, you know, in terms of personal thriving and survival in, a, in your career is understanding that basic fact. Yeah, you know, I think of like some of the stuff around differentiation and not being emotionally infected by the scandal that you kind of see around you. I mean, you're going to live a mm -hmm. pretty tired life if you're like, but but Ben, there's somebody messed up in accounting. Well, but, mm -hmm. well you don't work in accounting. I know, but <laughs> right, <laughs> you, you can't you can't just be subjected to the emotional whims of the stuff around you and realizing that, you know, hey, we we live in a primordial ooze of all kinds of shenanigans. And, <laughs> and, and you just have to get kind of narrow in, in your scope. You know, like if your job, you know, you're just starting out and your job's to make the coffee. Well, gosh darn it. Let's make really good coffee every yeah. day um, and, and plan your way forward. Um, another thing that I'm big on is this idea of collaborative alliances, um, you know, with your peers and well, with yeah. anybody that will, will offer you one. Um, yeah. I, well, what is, what do you mean? So Chris, what do you mean? First of all, going back, you use a, a great, um, term differentiation. I love unpack that a little bit. And then if you could just unpack the collaborative alliance thing. So differentiation followed by collaborative alliances. Cause I think those are really great ways to think about, um, how you position yourself within a team, within a group. Uh, and certainly as you navigate your career. Well, you know, I would encourage anybody to go read all of this. It's Bowen, Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, his research. We'll, we'll pop a show note with some links to who that person is. 
but um, just talks about it's really becoming your own person, um, mm. which means you, you know who you are, you know what your values are, um, and how you want to navigate this world, which will grow iteratively. But you make your changes based on to yourself, based on who you are and your values, rather than external pressures and those kinds of items. So it's, it's right. really, I mean, to summarize, it's standing on your own two feet. Mm. Um, and that's something that you're going to need as you go through life and you like, how do you even evaluate what type of organization you want to work with or for? Um, well, well, and so part of it for what I'm, I'm just kind of, uh, trying to paraphrase what you're saying there. So part of being differentiated is having less of a, uh, less of an emotional dependence upon how other people see me. Is that, is that part of it? Right. I, absolutely. I mean, it's a whole host of things. So, yeah. you, you know, hard to just completely summarize it, but it, it's, it, you're just your own person, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, and what's funny, and what's funny too, is now in, in an age in which most people are uh, immersed quite frequently in social media, is that <laughs> I think there's a tendency, if you're not careful, to, you know, base a lot of kind of how you feel throughout the day on external validation, you know, how many people are liking your little picture or whatever that you posted and stuff like that, right? Where we're, we're doing a lot of social comparison and not being maybe as differentiated uh, as we should be. And not, not to say that there's some sort of, you know, big cognitive shift that's happened here. I, I don't really know. Uh, that's a kind of an empirical question. But I think the, the question does remain, you know, how, how do you develop yourself so that you can stand on your own two, ve- two feet effectively um, in life and in an organization? Right. So just just to pulled up here real quick, the official definition of differentiation of self from Bowen, uh, the ability to be in emotional contact with others, yet still autonomous in one's own emotional functioning is the essence of the concept of differentiation. So okay. it's just not being infected. And then, you know, the thing that, you know, I run into a lot is people come to work and they're looking for a social support group, which is, you know, completely rational because you spend so much time at work and they're looking to develop friendships. But I, I would posit that your work relationships are different than, than your friendships. And that's where Mm -hmm. the idea of a collaborative alliance, I think is, is important because you're actually there to achieve something, to do something together. And, um, Viewing it as an alliance, a collaboration, a collaborative alliance, right, is I think the better kind of scope or idea. Yeah, and I, and I and I don't take it to mean that, or that you, I don't think you mean that you can't be friends with people at work, right? So we work together, and I think we're pretty good friends. Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that um, would be accurate. But, okay, good. Um, so, but but I think the point of the collaborative alliance is that if I'm at work and you know I just for whatever reason I'm I can't be friends with these people or I don't really see the need to we have no interest in common etc uh that hey I'm here to uh, help achieve some sort of bigger objective and so my best bet or a good approach is towards this idea of building a collaborative alliance with that person in order to um achieve some sort of outcome is that fair Yeah, absolutely. And you're not, you know, a lot of people look for some kind of emotional connection or feedback that probably is not going to be forthcoming and the first little bit. And especially Mm -hmm. as you head into the more executive levels of your career, you're going to have to dictate and set strategy based on 
you know, some kind of moral compass or this thing that's in your heart. Or, I mean, there, there becomes kind of an art and you're actually stepping out ahead of the crowd rather than looking to your left and right for the emotional feedback that, yes, yes, this is good. Yeah. Awesome. So you differentiate, you build these collaborative alliances. Um, you know, I think another thing that I, I would certainly emphasize to anyone, regardless of where they are in their career, and you've kind of already touched on this yourself a little bit, um, is knowing your values. Because if you don't know what you stand for, you know, what, what are those things that you will and will not tolerate um, personally and professionally? If you know those things, then those can be a North Star in and of themselves for you professionally and personally, um, you know, as you as you navigate this crazy world. Right. So, you know, it's about you know having some sort of moral compass. Um, you know, what are those things that you're going to uh, try to do to make the make the organization you're in a better place? Try to, you know, again, knowing your scope of influence, um, being that change that you want to see around you. Right. And then, you know, some of that stuff, if you are going to stand on your own two feet, develop meaningful collaborative alliances and, you know, have your values, your moral compass, that's going to drive you to have to leave organizations at time. That's not Mm -hmm. going to be a good fit. Um, You know, some of these, you know, I don't know, the first idea that comes to mind is entrepreneur founder who loves its company and really he hires people or she hires people to just make them feel good about themselves. And maybe rewards aren't based on merit or a whole host of other times. You know, sometimes there's just, or illegality, you know, somebody's doing something illegal, you know, like whistleblower type issues. You know, sometimes it's just time to leave. Sure, sure. Yeah, or if you find the, you know, find that you have your skills and abilities or your skills and and, uh, your knowledge have outpaced kind of your current role and, uh, there are opportunities elsewhere that that may be a signal that it's time to go to. Sometimes something I always say to my students is that, hey, if you if you find that you are more frequently than not the smartest person in the room, then, you know, it might be a good idea to try to find another room. Yeah, um, ex- ex- except for you, Ben, you're all alone because you're such an intellectual giant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> not a chance. I, one thing um, that um, you mention often is the Tarzan approach, which I think is yeah. a super easy to remember that name. What What is the Tarzan approach, Ben? So this is what I talk about with, with my students, and I, I didn't come up with this. I can't remember where I heard it. I just don't want to uh, claim that I'm the, the originator of the term, but... Um, a lot of times students will come to me, graduate students, you know, they're getting their MBA, they're maybe they're getting close to graduating, they're saying, hey, I'm going to become a little bit more marketable, trying to think about a career shift or something. And what I always try to emphasize to them is, hey, don't, uh, you know, just quit. You know, sometimes you're like, I want to start my own business. It's like, well, hold on a second. You know, you need to think about your own life situation and your income stream and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the Tarzan approach is to you know, make sure that you have a reasonably firm grasp on a new opportunity before you let go of the current one. So this is Tarzan swinging through the jungle, right? So this is, you know, get that vine and hang on. Make sure you have it firmly before you let go of the previous one. And ideally, you're doing that without you know, burning bridges, uh, behind you. Um, because you never know, you know, who you're going to come, come across professionally and so forth. So I think that that's one way to think about your career. Now, are there instances in which you can just make or should just make a dramatic, uh, change in your career? Yeah, probably. We could probably come up with some good, um, examples of that, but I think in general, 
the Tarzan approach is one that can be helpful for a lot of folks. Right. I, I know that even when you're in a bad situation, um, you know, I've been under some bad leadership in the military and in the civilian sector. And everybody kind of knows it's bad. And so if you do good work and the people around you know you as somebody that has integrity, who does good work, um, that supports other people, you know, those people are going to help you further down in your career mm -hmm. as, as part of your network, you know, which networking can yeah. have kind of like a kind of campy, you know, hey, what have you done for me lately vibe? But, you know, we've been in situations where somebody needs a clutch HR person right away. And, yep. what, and if they need somebody, they can't wait. Well, they're going to tap their network first and be like, hey, Fred's a good guy or Jane's a good, you know, person we could get in there, you know, that kind of thing. And they'll, they'll know that because they've worked with you in the trenches and seen how you thrive even in, in adversity, right? Yeah, yeah. And that actually reminds me of something I was going to say earlier that, you know, uh, and I think is when you were talking about, hey, if your job is to make the coffee, make the best darn coffee that you can, right? right. Um, I, I, you never know who's, who's watching. Uh, sometimes it may feel like you're just a cog in a machine and uh, no one cares about the hard work you're doing. That is not an excuse to not do good work. Always do your best work, um, both from a personal, you know, uh, sign of integrity and, and trying to just, just do the best you can, but also just from uh, the standpoint that someone somewhere probably is noticing. And as you mentioned, um, people do like to help each other out. Uh, I, I have a lot of opportunities, uh, you know, working with graduate students that, um, you know, where they, they have career career questions or, or things. And I love being able to put them in touch with somebody who can help them out. Uh, I always say at the end of the semester, I, so I say, you know, keep in touch. If you don't keep in touch, it's your fault, not mine. And then I have this slide where I show like all the places where I am on social media and how easy it is to find me. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it, it really is your fault if you can't find me. Uh, but, and the re but I, I, I you know, I kind of joke about it, but I really do enjoy um, helping people when I can. It, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, people help me out along the way um, as I went through my career. And it's it's good to be able to uh, to do that for other people. I, in fact, uh, you know, in a, uh, someone emailed me yesterday, a former student said, hey, like, you know, would you be able to look at my resume and tell me if, you know, how it looks and so forth. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. But first, like, tell me your, tell me what you're looking for and so forth. And then I was like, great. Let, let's have a call. So I'm going to talk to her a little bit later today. And, you know, I, I think that that's um, something that people like to do and, uh, you know, never hesitate to ask, especially, if, you know, because a lot of these things we've been talking about here, I think, are, are really important for you know, how to thrive uh, despite this, the uh, scandalous management and so forth um, at really those early career uh, type uh, positions. So um, people do like to help. Yeah, uh, two things I'd also like to add. Like for me personally, one of the things uh, of my differentiation journey, if you could say <laughs> that, is that I'm going to make the best darn coffee, not because my manager or my peers made me feel good about making good coffee, but I'm going to do it because that's that's the substance of who I am. And yeah. that person, you know, to, you know, hit the Gandhi quote, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Well, like I want to be the person I want to be in the world regardless of whatever. Now, if I'm only that person when it's easy and I'm getting accolades, you know, that, that really doesn't say much about my character, right? Right. Um, so 
like for me, that's been a big, big thing. You know, my form of differentiation is being being that person. And then I, I think something else that I would tell a young person coming up um, is, hey, get involved in some kind of leadership position. If that's, you know, yep. heading up a community choir, you know, a lot of this stuff has to be learned in the lab of life. But when mm-hmm. you go to hit that lab of life, don't just do it blindly. There's no need for you to try to come up with all these management theories on your own. Right. So if you can go learn some of the basics of organizational behavior, leadership, management, HR stuff, all that kind of stuff, um, you'll actually be able to recognize which leaders are kind of doing it well or not, Mm -hmm. not just making people feel good, because sometimes leaders get accomplished what needs to be accomplished. And it really hacks a bunch of people off. But it's really the best thing in the end. And, you know, culture and their ethics judge them after the fact long after all their followers have dispersed and are another organization but you know if you understand those basics of organizational behavior leadership and those kinds of things you can seek out those good leaders um also you can use it as a way to detect which culture um exists at the organizations you might want to be in so you can guide your career path but all of that stuff has to be practiced in a lab like you can watch and get good coaching on boxing but if you never step into the ring so i'd encourage people there's so many nonprofits, so many things especially you know if you're just kind of setting out on this journey get some experience um big brothers big sisters you know those kinds of uh items you know i you got to get out there but don't go blind don't crash through that wall on your own do it with um the knowledge of all this Psych- organizational psychology and stuff, the best practice behind you. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I, I oftentimes tell people like, you know, when we talk about networking, um, you know, networking to some people is going into a crowded room where they don't know anybody and seeing who they can hand their business card to. It's ridiculous, right? right which, <laughs> what does that even do other than waste paper, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing. I actually was at a professional conference once where this, this poor young soul, like, Got we were there was a group of us on the elevator and we were going like just imagine like from the first floor to like the tenth floor so we were all on the elevator together and then the elevator stops at like the second floor and this youngish person got on and the door closes and we go up like maybe one floor so it's a very short period of time and just like without saying anything or just barely saying anything this this young guy just like handed us all his business cards and then ran out the door and then the doors closed again and we're all we all just kind of look at each other and we're like well that's one way to do it i guess <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you're right it's so meaningless uh you know so going back to your point about nonprofits and getting involved in stuff you know if you are I, I think professional organizations too so let's say you're in hr and you join your local you know society for human resource management chapter the best way to start showing people that you're competent and to really start to get to know people and actually network, I think, is volunteer to be on a committee. I mean, these they are always looking for people to volunteer on stuff um, and get in. And you can very quickly, oftentimes, uh, be able to make an impact and it can be really great. So um, I would second what you said there. Absolutely. OK, so mo- most of what we just talked about, I mean, it's good for everybody, but kind of has a focus on early, early, mid-career people, people just getting yep. out of college, grad school, those kinds of items. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about for that mid-level person, and, you know, that sounds so judgmental, like, are you a mid-level person? But uh, <laughs> well, let's say for people with management responsibilities, what, yeah. how can they thrive in this kind of environment that we just listed? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing, and this is coming from a hopelessly biased perspective of me being a professor, uh, as well as a consultant is that, you know, training can help. I mean, it's, it's great to be able to know what right looks like, um, and to learn from those, learn from the research on all of this stuff, um, related to organizational, uh, psychology related to organizational behavior, how people behave in organizations, what leadership looks like, what it doesn't look like. Uh, and it's very helpful to understand all of those different, uh, facets, and put them into practice uh, in your organization. So I think some training can help um, at first. Yeah, so uh, that, that's, that's... Let me ask a question on that. Just interrupt yeah. you here for a minute. So, so training. So you're you're interested. You know, you've been in a management role. You're super excited about being better because you look at you know the people that report to you or in your peers, and and you just feel a strong need to be your best for them. There's mm-hmm. so much garbage out there. You know, where do you go to find data driven research validated information that is, you know, not so dense that you need a Ph.D. to sort it? Well, I think the first place, obviously, is www.indigopodcast.com. Um, and yeah, listen nice. to, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and I'm, I'm half joking cause I think we are really trying to, to reach people in a way that, uh, is grounded in the science and yet isn't, um, you know, spoken about or written about in, a, in an esoteric way that is on a, un, that is not understandable to folks. We want to make these types of concepts accessible to everyone. Uh, so, I mean, I think there are a number of, of good books out there and I think we'll, we'll put some links perhaps in the show notes for this episode, um, you know, some places to get started. I would look, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I would go away probably from some of the kind of um, really popular types of books that are more anecdotal in nature uh, that you may find, you know, in your local bookstore or in the airport. Um, I would I would probably not start look with at those. The authors. Um, uh, would, are these people who have um, some sort of, um, research base? Are they at least drawing upon the research? Are they citing the research? Because there are some people, you don't have to be um, a PhD to write a, an awesome leadership book by any stretch. Um, but are they drawing upon some of those types of um, streams of research? Are they uh, perhaps, you know, building upon our knowledge instead of just telling a bunch of stories? Because the problem is with, with some of these stories is that they can be highly convincing. They can be very, we're, we're drawn to narratives. You and I have talked about that um, before. And, right. and that's kind of how, how humans remember things um, really well. You know, we, we like stories. And yet the problem is that if we get too enraptured by stories about how, what leadership looks, looks like, for example, or what works in a certain organization, is that we're going to just think that every organization is exactly like that. And that's, um, that can be problematic, Oh, and the feel yeah. good, the feel good, like these books, are like, oh, that was like, there's like chicken soup for the managerial soul oh, or something. Awful. And no, I don't I know. know. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's that idea of like, oh, you felt so much catharsis from reading yes. the story, right? <laughs> um, that, that, that when you, well, what are you going to do yeah. with it? You know, I, I've asked executives like, hey, tell me about this book on your bookshelf. What were two things you took for that, that from that that impact how you operate today? And I'll get blank yeah. stares. Yeah. And, um, but kudos to them for reading because, uh, you know, I, I find that a lot of execs just buy the book to have on their shelf. They, they don't actually read. 
Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about what we call LMX, Ben. What's LMX stand So LMX for? is a, um, it's kind of a, a, a whole stream of research in the leadership literature, um, and it stands for Leader Member Exchange. Um, and it has to do with this phenomenon in, in most leadership situations in which um, leaders develop different uh, relationships with all their subordinates. And those relationships vary in terms of the quality of those relationships. So if you have a high leader member exchange, that means it's a high quality relationship with your boss. And uh, very naturally, what this can do in a team, if the leader isn't careful, is that they can start to develop kind of in-groups and out-groups within the team. There are those people that have a really, who get along yeah, really well with the boss and people who don't get along really well with the boss. And the people who get along with the boss, there are many advantages to that in terms of... Right. Anybody that's been in a leadership role has been like, hey, I, I really like right, this person. Right. And, and you just naturally, you know, you have that affinity. And, and I mean, kind of our focus right now is like, hey, well, if you have a ma management responsibility, what do you need yeah, to be aware yeah. of? Right. And, and you've got to be aware of this in-group, out-group. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll put some data in the show notes around leader member exchange. And it, it's that whole idea of like, you know, fighting implicit bias doesn't have to necessarily deal with um, minority groups mm -hmm. or something. We have implicit bias just on this person makes me feel good. This person is doesn't make me feel as right. good. And right, those, those in-group, out-group things. But if you actually want to drive um, results as a manager or as a leader within your organization, you need to, if you're given a team of 10, you need to fire on all yep. 10 cylinders, which means making sure that you're not excluding people and that you're getting the best performance that you can get out of, out of your team. Uh, yeah, that's very well put. I think um, the, the key here too, is that your creation of in-groups and out-groups within a team as a leader can be completely unintentional, right? It, it's not that you're a nasty person who's going to, you know, with some malicious intent, try to exclude people. Um, you know, some of it just has to do with our natural bias towards, uh, liking people who are like us. Right. So in sociology, we call that homophily. So homophily is the, this phenomenon in which we just tend to like people who are similar to us. It's it's um, you know, it's not necessarily your fault, but you need to be aware of that. It's like, hey, hey, if like, you know, I had a team and maybe some people had uh, in on that team had very similar backgrounds to me. We'd probably be interested in the same stuff. You know, we'd have more to talk about. If I'm not careful, I'm going to be, you know, focusing so much on those folks that I'm going to be. Uh, excluding the rest of the team. So um, absolutely something to keep in mind. Developing those high-quality relationships with all of your subordinates uh, can be a, a way to, to thrive as a, as a leader if you have those people management responsibilities. Sure. You know, another model that I think about that you need to be familiar if you're in uh, management and don't want to be um, contributing to the um, scandalization <laughs> of people yeah. um, is is the uh, situational leadership um, uh, yeah. information by what is it Hersey yep, and yep. Blanchard is it yeah yeah so we'll put that in the show notes um, collaborative alliance talk to your uh, subordinates and peers about what a collaborative alliance is and how it's important moral compass I mean that's important throughout the sure. organization but 
one of those things um, that the literature really speaks to is about like organizational mm-hmm. support. So you need to be a supportive supervisor, but I don't know, Ben, like you're super, you should be familiar with this literature. <laughs> uh, why would you be familiar with this literature? Yeah, ben? So glad you asked. Uh, so the whole <laughs> stream of research on organizational support and its central construct, which is perceived organizational support, um, is a it's a it's a big area in organizational psychology, and it it first started with my academic grandfather. Now, some of you who are not nerdy na- academics may wonder, well, what is an academic grandfather? Well, it works like this. So, my advisor for my dissertation was a professor named Linda Rhodes Shannick. Well, Linda's advisor was Bob. Robert Eisenberger. And Robert Eisenberger, so he is he was my advisor's advisor, which means that he's my academic grandfather. So in 1986, uh, my academic grandfather, Bob, and a handful of co-authors um, published a paper in the Journal of Applied Psychology, this was back in 1986, called Perceived Organizational Support. And they were talking about this idea that um, in any organization, um, employees, to some degree, develop kind of global perceptions about the degree to which that organization values their contributions and cares about their well-being. Those are the two big pieces, that the, that the organization values my contributions and cares about my well-being. And based upon this perception of organizational support, it's a completely perceptual type of idea, this, this, um, this construct. Uh, you know, I, I think the organization really cares about me as a person and values what I do for the organization. I'm going to have a, an, I'm going to feel an obligation to reciprocate back to the organization. I'm going to do that through um, having, uh, you know, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be more committed to the organization. Uh, and it also has some benefits for me. I, I, there's kind of these social, socio-emotional benefits. I'm going to be happier on the job. I'm going to have lower stress and so forth. Um, and so this is kind of the, this, this whole area of research that started by, back in uh, the mid-'80s and has really blossomed over the past um, number of decades. And so I've, I've done some work in this area, and you know, f- combining all of that research on this idea of perceived organizational support with my practical experience, what I've seen in organizations has really made me come to believe that this is a a central construct, a central idea um, for explaining and helping to improve a lot of how organizational behavior happens. Um, I like to kind of think of it as a, like th- this is kind of the organizational engine um, that helps an organization work well on a behavioral level. Um, you know, when people feel like their organization values their contributions and cares about their well-being, they are going to be more likely to reciprocate both to the supervisor in terms of you know more effort, uh, also be uh, more committed to the organization as well as some of those benefits for the person. Um, individually. So does that answer your first question there, Chris? Yeah. And I, I think that's like, if somebody hears this for the first time, they're kind of like, Oh my gosh, how do you even have to say that? Yeah. Like, of, of course, I'd love to work for an organization right. like that. Um, and then the, the second piece is, and I don't know if it just points to like a like kind of hubris or like moral failing on the part of a lot of leadership is you can't fake this. Like people in an organization knows 
when the organization really gives a rip about them or not, you know? Um, And it was like, well, what can I, what if I got them Starbucks gift cards? (laughs) And I'm like, no, that's not going to erase like a decade plus of bad cultural shenanigans that you have or, or the fact that, you know, we're in all types of relationships, but we know when somebody really values us from all the nonverbal communication Mm -hmm. and norms within that place. So, yeah, if, if you're a um, manager, you need to be familiar with the idea of being a supportive supervisor and what organizational support right. looks like. Right, um, Yeah, and I think just to highlight, you know, some of the, um, the things that predict perceived organizational support. So I talked about some of those outcomes, right? So we, we, we agree that it's a good thing. People are going to reciprocate, right? This is based on that norm of reciprocity, which has been found all over the world, every different culture. We all have this fundamental norm that if someone does something nice for us, we, to some degree, feel obligated to reciprocate. Um, so there's all those good outcomes that we talked about. But we also have, you know, it's important to also think about what kinds of things will engender these feelings of support from the organization. And there are really kind of three big buckets of them. The first is supervisor support. So if my supervisor values my contributions and cares about my well-being, then I'm going to think the organization does. Because that supervisor is my window through which I view the organization to some degree, depending on whether or not they kind of have credibility, right? Depending on whether or not I perceive that person as being an agent of the organization. You know, I was thinking back to, you know, some of my early experiences on active duty in the Navy. And I had, you know, a, a, a supervisor of sorts who was not particularly great. And, you know, to me, at that moment, it was like, it wasn't just that I didn't like that supervisor, it was that I hated the entire United States Navy, right? It was just, it was just <laughs> ridiculous, because, I, it, of course, I don't hate the Navy. I mean, it's a gigantic organization. Well, we personify. Yeah. I mean, we personify we, everything, yeah. right? That's just a feature of humanity. So, you know, it, it doesn't become, oh, this complex organization with multivariate people acting independently. Yeah. It becomes that company, right? right. Yeah, exactly. So be a supportive supervisor. That's number one. Number two is, has to do with uh, fairness. So people's perceptions of fairness are are very, very powerful, um, at least for most of us. Most of us are somewhat sensitive to uh, matters of equity and fairness in organizations. Um, And there are kind of two big types of, of fairness that I think are important to distinguish between. The first one is what we call procedural, uh, or actually I'll talk about distributive justice, distributive fairness first. And this is the fairness that has to do with outcomes. So did I get what I deserved, Um, you know, in terms of resources, budgets, and so forth, uh, raises, that kind of stuff. That's distributive justice. And we do care a lot about that. And it has big implications for our satisfaction and our performance and so forth, our commitment. Um, But the other type of justice or fairness is called procedural justice or fairness. And this is not about whether or not I got what I thought I deserved, but it's it's more about do I perceive the process that was used to make those decisions as being fair? And what's interesting is when they compare the outcomes, you know, the uh, they both they both matter, right? We care about that the distribution of an allocation of resources, but we we actually care a little bit more about the process that was used to make those decisions. And you can think of those times in which maybe you didn't get the, the, the raise you deserved or the budget for your team that you thought you deserved or so forth. Um, but if you understood why, 
then you're more likely to accept it. You're going to say, okay, well, I don't really like the outcome, but you know what? That's a pretty doggone fair process. And, um, you know, I'll accept it. Right. So I think, yeah. yeah. And so right. that's why I, right. you know, I oftentimes will coach executives to, to really be intentional about whenever they can to, it's not always possible, but whenever they can try to explain the process that was used to make any kind of decision. Um, now, of course, if, if the, the building's on fire, we're not going to explain the process for, you know, how I decided that we're going to leave the building. I, sometimes, you, sometimes you just have to do stuff, right? But, <laughs> right. Um, but there are oftentimes, I'd say more often than not, we do have the opportunity to uh, explain the process. And, and of course, that means you have to have a good process to begin with. You know, it's not just, well, we just kind of, you know, threw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and, you know, try to see what sticks. It's, it has to be better than that. Um, so, right. so that's number two, that's uh, fairness. Um, and then, then the third and final category of things that help us, uh, help employees to perceive more organizational support have, has to do with kind of this large bucket of things that we just kind of call organizational rewards and job conditions. So this is making sure people, um, have the, have the support they need in terms of the tools to do their job that, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, an environment that is, uh, super noisy and dirty and unsafe. Um, you know, they have, they, they have a, a desk and a phone if they need it, all that kind of stuff, as well as being, um, you know, fairly compensated in those types of, of aspects. Yeah. So if, if you're at a place, if you're at the C-suite, right, or you have some kind of organizational wide authority, so you could be like the mm-hmm. head of HR, um, you know, you can definitely dip down into these like management tricks that we're talking about. What are some other things you can do to foster that kind of supportive organization cross-functionally? I mean, we have the what. Let's talk a little bit about the how. So I think um, there are a couple of things. One being that you can need to be supportive yourself uh, as, as a supervisor. So, you know, if you're at the top of the organization, um, and you, you have a team of executives who report to you, by, the research actually shows statistically that if I am supportive to those people, they're going to be more likely to be supportive, supportive to their subordinates. Now, it's not always going to happen, but there is a trickle-down effect that happens. So be a supportive supervisor yourself as a senior executive. Um, but then a lot of this kind of, I think, ties into the whole cultural aspect of things uh, and the culture and climate that you're trying to create in your organization around, you know, making sure that you are expecting and supporting and rewarding those behaviors that make people feel like their contributions are valued and that they're cared about. You know, if if you, for example, say all day that you, you know, really care about, um, you know, the, the flourishing of working mothers in your organization and and yet you, don't have any kind of provision for time off when they have a baby or, and afterwards and that kind of stuff, well, that's not really going to uh, signal that you have any real um, caring for that, for that segment of your population in your organization, right? Right, right. Um, so I think those are, those are some of the big things. I think rewards and recognition do, do come into play. Um, but this also ties back to some of the things we already talked about with having those high-quality relationships with the people who work with you. And that, I loved how you, you said you just can't fake this stuff. Um, you might be able to fake it for, like, a little while, but people will see through it. You have to um, – it has to be kind of true, true to who you are, and, and you have to actually care about people in order to make them feel like they actually are cared about. All right, Ben. So 
let's wrap up. So today's topic was scandalized by management, a jaded look at adult working life, and how to thrive anyway. Um, I think it's important to summarize uh, like the idea of if, if you're new in an organization, or even if you've been there for a while, maybe you're a subject matter expert and don't have any authority within the organization, that uh, context is everything. So things you might want to look at are stuff like, hey, what is your industry like? If you're in the television film industry in LA, it's going to be a grind if you're a visual effects artist or something like that, yeah. right? So, um, or if you're in the music industry or something like that, there's a lot of people in that place and it might not just be the most hospitable um, culture based on structural issues within the industry. Right. If, I mean, if you're a buggy whip manufacturer, I mean, it's it's challenging, right? <laughs> I guess you're like trying to make corporal punishment great again or something you know, <laughs> expand your market good. yeah good luck with that right so but things you can do at that entry level or subject matter expert level someplace where you don't the key point here is like not having a lot of authority within the organization is hey build your expertise if you become known for being really good at something, people will recognize that and that will help you. Mm-hmm. Um, your personal network. Uh, the biggest way to build this, in my view, is just how you conduct yourself around others. And we're not talking necessarily friendship, but we're talking about awesome collaborative alliances, being known as a person of integrity, keeping what you're uh, you know, doing, what you say you'll do, um, and just being a good, honest person. You know, you get you get known for that and that becomes your brand. Now, you know, since we have all these online social media tools and all that kind of stuff, you know, people think about branding is, you know, am I curating my Instagram or how I present myself on uh, Facebook? But I think all of us know that that can be heavily curated. The, Mm -hmm. The best thing you can do for yourself is building your brand through authenticity, being who you say you are and actually working on those elements that aren't quite where you want them to be in your personal life. Right. Um, I think it's important also to realize that work isn't everything. Um, there are so many ways to thrive in life. And if your job's not doing it for you, you know, look at those opportunities to volunteer, you know, get involved with, um, organizations or groups or hobbies that you care about that allows you to meet people and, uh, have meaningful connections there. Mm-hmm. Be a good friend. Uh, a lot of data on how friendships increase the quality of our lives and what how that enhances our just well-being at, at all. Absolutely. Um, so moving from there, from the entry level or not having authority within an organization, uh, mid-management, think about your epitaph. What is a life well-lived? Um, this is something each person has to decide, and it matters um, because it's going to be based on all those values and stuff you've built throughout your life. Um, this will be your guiding light for how you interact within your organization, and it, it has that ripple effect that you talked about, Ben. Um, mm-hmm. If you raise your subordinate's job satisfaction, you could literally be saving their life, their marriage. It has a whole bunch of health benefits on the people around you. So even if you're with somebody that you even may have to let go for job performance-related issues, if you conduct yourself well, um, 
you can have a real positive impact on that person and how they get to move um, through life. So Ben, senior levels of organization, C-suite, vice president, director, and above, um, what, what are some of the things they should be thinking about? Sure. So I think it's some of the similar things. And, and I think uh, a big theme there is, you know, most of these people are a little bit further on in their careers, a little bit older, perhaps. And I think at this point in your career, it's really about thinking about how are you building a positive legacy and thinking very deeply about and taking action on those types of uh, ideas that come forth, right? And some of the things we've talked about here today. Um, The thing that I think is important to remember as you ascend the corporate ladder, as you get more senior in an organization, you already mentioned this, but as you, as you get more senior, what you do has a, an ever increasing ripple effect, right? You have more of an impact on people's lives, on their work. And if you're a senior executive, literally thousands of people could be suffering just because of your shenanigans. Right. And, you you know, that's that's something that should give you a little bit of pause if you're a senior executive uh, in thinking about how you're making decisions and what those decisions and the outcomes of those uh, choices are. Uh, I think sometimes it's very important if you're in a senior level to get an outside perspective through a trusted confidant, a trusted advisor. Uh, You know, this is something that we've done a lot with senior executives, just being that um, outside perspective to help calibrate um, what they're thinking about and how they're making decisions, because it can be very hard to you know see the, the forest when you're really in the thick of it, when you're in the trees, so to speak. You know, and another thing that I think is, is really important for folks in their senior levels, um, but, and really all of us, um, to be thinking about is to be thinking about the, the end, and not to be macabre, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about death. Um, I think it's yeah. important for us to, to think about the fact that, you know what, the mortality rate, as far as I know, is still 100%. Well, 100% mortality rate. Everybody, everybody will die at some point, right? <laughs> ab- absolutely. And I, I think the thing that I see a lot here is people just wind up at the end of their life. Yeah. You know, it wasn't deliberate and perfect or uh, deliberate and purposeful every step of the way. So if you're an entrepreneur founder, you know, you talk to them about what's your continuity plan? Like none of them have like a secession plan because it it makes Mm -hmm. them challenge uh, themselves to think about, well, what will this organization be like when I'm not around? Or if you're a C-suite person, you come in, they're not thinking, hey, this is a five or seven year run. I mean, some people might, but but the the whole uh, idea is like being intentional each step of the way helps you not be a victim of circumstance. So you, you know, you eventually come out of your role, you hit retirement, and everything's empty for you. Hmm. Um, so I, Ben, I think you, you got a couple quotes from... Yeah. Yeah. Wanna... Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, some stuff that comes from... I actually came, first came across these ideas from a TED Talk by a woman named Jane McGonigal, and we'll put a link up to that, um, where she's actually talking in this TED Talk about video games um, and the virtues of them, um, which is a little bit... She, she weaves in these ideas. Uh, but she's talking in that, in that video about the five top regrets of the dying. And I did a little bit of digging, and this, this comes up from... Um, actually, from a, 
an Australian palliative care nurse. Her name was Bronnie Ware, and she spent a number of years um, caring for patients in the last 12 weeks of their lives. Um, She found this so fascinating that she began to record kind of their uh, their dying epiphanies, um, and she was she put them on a blog, and then she uh, actually wrote a book called "The Top Five Regrets of the Dying." Now I have not read the book, but I, there's some good summaries out there, and we'll put a link up to the one uh, that actually was posted in February of 2012 um, on the the Guardian's website. And there's some really great things that I think we should all keep in mind when it comes to the top five regrets of the dying. So number one, uh, according to this nurse who had witnessed all these people going through the last few weeks of their lives, number one is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And this is quoting from her, uh, from this article in The Guardian, this was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it is easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. Health brings a freedom that very few realize until they no longer have it. So that's number one. Wow. And and I think that, that speaks to the idea of like nobody fantasized like, hey, you know, looking back on my life, I really want to reflect on being a jerk manager, you know, yeah. or or treating other people poorly. I mean, there may be something personal in somebody's life that might drive some of those like issues or behaviors. But, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, am I being the person that I want to be? So there's two things. One, don't don't take work super, super seriously. It is mm-hmm. one aspect of who you are. Second, since we have to spend so much time on work gosh, let, let's make the environment a place we would want to work and um, a treatment of each other at, like we would want to be treated. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that kind of brings us to number two. And number two is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And, <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, so th- I'm quoting again, this came from every male patient that I nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners. All of the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. So don't work as hard. And that's a tough thing when, you know, everything that we talk about, um, you know, for example, in a business school, we're talking about careers and working hard and everything. And I think it's important for us to realize that, hey, that's not all there is to life, right? Right. And if, if you get, especially when you're coming out, I remember when I got out of grad school, I hopped on a project that had me flying out every Sunday night, Monday morning, back every Friday night, Saturday morning. Yep. And then, you know, I was in the National Guard, um, still am, but, you know, I had drill one weekend a month. So I, I was literally with my family three weekends a month, and Gosh. maybe like three quarters. And you're like, yeah, I'm really paying those dues. I'm I'm really working hard. But if you just hit that, you know, grindstone so hard, you're actually going to sort short circuit the middle and end parts of your career because you're not, you know, getting boned up on those HR, you know, technical things, those leadership mm-hmm. models. You're not reading to expand your view of the world. 
So, I mean, you just become a super efficient tool or automaton, which will help you early. But when you're at those later issues, you have to face those philosophical dilemmas that we all face during our careers. You're actually not going to be as equipped as if you took some time out. You know, yeah. other people may be hitting the grind. It, you know, they might pull ahead in the short term. But, you know, taking a longer term approach and building your whole person is actually going to help you more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part of it is just also being a little bit more patient with yourself with regard to your career progression and realizing that, hey, I don't have to, you know, be always, you know, the, the first one to achieve this by this age or whatever. And, and I know that can be hard, especially when we're, you know, comparing ourselves to each other and it's very easy to do so. And, you know, everybody's got their, as you mentioned, their curated social media, you know, so it's very easy for us to look and compare at least compare ourselves with what people want to be sharing about themselves. Right. Um, sometimes I wish that we just had a LinkedIn where we posted everything that we failed at and all the jobs we didn't get. Maybe I'll do that sometime. (laughs) I I mean, I think it'd be helpful. Um, so number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And I quote, many people suppress their feelings in order to keep peace with others. As a result, they settled for a mediocre existence and never became who they were truly capable of becoming. Many developed illnesses related to the bitterness and resentment they carried as a result. Wow. So I guess sometimes it's, uh, we, we, we have a tendency to um, sacrifice our own well-being in the, the name of uh, you know, getting along with others or just having consensus with those around us. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the differentiation data, which we didn't do it justice as far as how much um, we should cover. Mm -hmm. But being your own person um, is super important for your mental health and your just stability to run the marathon that is our working lives and how long we have to work. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And I quote, often they would not truly realize the full benefits of old friends until their dying weeks, and it was not always possible to track them down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they had let golden friendships slip by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort that they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they are dying. Gosh, I, wow. To bring up an old, I mean, I think it's still around, but there, there was a web model called Mm classmates.com. And it, a lot of the data from that stuff speaks to this situation where people are, you know, they let people come into their lives and, and go, and maybe they were close friends for a time and season. But when you get to that kind of end of life, now you want to reach, reach out to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll hear my parents say, oh, yeah, so-and-so had a grandkid or, you know, they're super attached to all those things. But what I could never figure out is why why let those relationships go fallow? And, you know, mm-hmm. being in the military, you'll be put in assignment for somebody for uh, a year, maybe two years or, you know, those kinds of situations. But we find this data that everybody in their latter years wants to go back and capture all those friends. Well, I, I mean, that's something I'm doing in my life personally. I am making a deliberate, conscious effort to keep up friendships. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that often means I'm the one doing the calling. 
and the, the uh, emails and, and reaching out. Um, but I'm confident that's going to pay a dividend for me so I can live, you know, I don't have to live with that regret of, hey, where, where are all my friends at? And also, yeah. also realizing that everybody's going through this point in life where they're super busy. They're having kids. They're launching their, uh, like, a second career in their life or, or whatever it is. Um, but that they're going to be appreciative, too, of keeping that contact. Yeah, that, that's really well said. And I think um, I could take some lessons from you on all of that because it was, it was tough for me. Because I, you know, I went off to, to college and then went straight from there into active duty in the Navy and was, you know, all over the, the country and the world and doing all that kind of stuff. And it so it made this gap in between some of my earlier friends and then some of my newer friends. And of course, I have some fantastic friends from all my military experiences, but I think that I haven't done that great of a job of keeping in touch with a lot of those folks. And I should do much more work uh, kind of in a deliberate fashion, like you were mentioning, to, to maintain all of that. Number five, and this is, again, the, the top five regrets of the dying. Number five, and the final one, I wish that I had let myself be happier. And I quote, this is a surprisingly common one. Many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice. They had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits. The so-called comfort of familiarity overflowed into their emotions as well as their physical lives. Fear of change had them pretending to others and to themselves that they were content when deep within they longed to laugh properly and have silliness in their life again. (laughs) You you know, I always think of this as like the corporate persona, you know, Mm. how, you know, especially if you're in the more formal company culture, you know, everybody kind of puts on their suit of armor known as a suit and, uh, you know, and they have this like executive presence posture. And, uh, sometimes I think just laughing and letting people realize there's a human issues. A a lot of people want to sterilize their presentation at work. And Mm -hmm. gosh, this, those cultures are, they're kind of a life suck, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, at least for me, I don't know, maybe there are some people who would really enjoy that. I, I haven't met any, but, um, you know, I I personally, you know, love to laugh, and I think it's very important. And there's there's all kinds of data on how important it is for your health, anyway, right? To to um, to laugh frequently. So, um, absolutely. And it, I mean, it's the idea of bringing your whole self to work. Like, if your spouse just passed away, you know, are you going to be like, "Yay, let's let's do a trust fall during today's group meeting"? Like, yeah. no, you know. And but there's also I. I don't see a clear playbook or that kind of behavior modeled on how do you allow room for people's emotions and persons um, at work while still also getting stuff done. Yeah, that's a tricky one because, you know, on one hand, we certainly, you know, find that it is important for people to be able to feel like they can bring their full selves to work and that, you know, your personal life, there, there is a a, um, a bleed over into your professional life. And at the same time, there's, you know, you don't want every manager to, to become or, or feel the need to become the therapist for all of their people. Um, so, so I think it's a balance and there's not an easy answer to that. I think it's a complex one. I think some of it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of developing those high quality relationships um, so that you, you do have a sense for what's going on in, in the, the lives of the people that work around you. Um, you know, one thing I always 
tell my students is, you know, don't assume that someone's uh, beha- you know performance issue at work is just due to them being lazy or just due to them, you know, maybe not having the skills or something. You need to investigate that first because they may have something going on uh, that you don't know about. You know, the, I'll say what I always say is, look, like you may really be upset with an employee and you pull that employee into your office and you start berating them for their performance issues and saying how it's unacceptable. And then imagine that the employee turns to you and says, well, I got to tell you, um, you know, my six-year-old has leukemia. Yeah. You are yeah, like I mean, the worst person. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's always important to develop those high quality relationships and to try to develop some, um, a good understanding of, of each other. I mean, a key platform here is the idea that having a place of authentic connection is the way in which you're able to even really assess what's going on. Mm-hmm. So if you have a team of 10 and you don't, allow in-group, out-group dynamics to develop, you have an authentic, real relationship, a real collaborative alliance with each one, you're not, you're going to be less likely to have a distorted view of who that person is and what's going on as far as at work and life. And then if Absolutely. you do have to have those discussions, it can come from a real place that values uh, that person. So I, I think that's one theme that I think we've seen it in our podcast today that, that, hey, you can't fake this stuff. Real connections and real relationships really matter as far as making the best steps um, to be able to thrive in this kind of suboptimal corporate world. Very well said. Well, Ben, I think that's all the time we have for today. You want to take us on out? Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.